Good. Well, a very warm welcome to the first meeting this calendar year of the Aristotelian Society. It's a great pleasure for me to introduce someone who's already well known to many of you, Michael Garnett, who has a senior lectureship at Birkbeck College here in London. And his research interests mainly concern freedom of one form or another, um, embracing issues in both political philosophy and the philosophy of action. And he's written a number of papers on these issues, tonight's paper being a case in point. Um, in due course, I'll hand over to Michael. But first of all, a, a reminder of the format. Uh, Michael will speak for um, between 45 minutes and an hour. Uh, we'll then have a brief break for tea or coffee. And that will be followed by uh, the question and answer session. And we shall aim to finish at about quarter past seven. So without further ado, I'll hand over to Michael, whose paper is entitled Freedom and Indoctrination. Thank you. Thank you. So my starting point is an issue in the free will dispute that's been generating a bit of heat in some of the recent debates. It's an anti-compatibilist argument. That is an argument against the view that free will and moral responsibility are compatible with determinism. And it's called the manipulation argument. The basic idea is this. If you imagine a causally predetermined action that meets all of the standard compatibilist requirements on freedom and responsibility, such as relevant knowledge, reasons responsiveness, higher order endorsement, non-coercion, so on. And then suppose that the distant causal chains that are inevitably leading to this action's performance were in fact initiated by some sinister manipulator. Since this further supposition isn't precluded by any of the standard compatibilist requirements, it looks like the compatibilist is committed to the implausible view that agents who are insidiously controlled by unwelcome manipulators can nevertheless be paragons of freedom and responsibility. And what's more, the root source of the compatibilist problem seems to be her very claim that freedom and responsibility are compatible with determinism. Because this is just the claim that freedom and responsibility are compatible with manipulation by natural forces. And once it's allowed that agents can be free and responsible, despite being no more than marionettes, what can it matter who or what is pulling the strings? That's the argument. And Alfred Mealy gives a particular version of this argument centered around a case um, that's been a focus of much of this discussion. In his case, a supremely intelligent being called Diana creates a zygote, Z, in a woman, Mary, who's destined to develop and become a particular man, Ernie. Mealy tells us that Diana combines Z's atoms as she does because she wants a certain event E to occur 30 years later. From her knowledge of the state of the universe just prior to her creating Z and the laws of nature of her deterministic universe, she deduces that a zygote with precisely Z's constitution located in Mary will develop into an ideally self-controlled agent, read an agent who meets all of the standard compatibilist requirements, who in 30 years will judge on the basis of rational deliberation that it's best to A, and will A on the basis of that judgment, thereby bringing about E. So the manipulation argument is that Ernie does not 
perform his action A with full freedom and moral responsibility. Nevertheless, he satisfies all of the compatibilist requirements, therefore compatibilism is false. The basic idea here is it's one thing for the compatibilists to ask us to believe that an agent can act freely and responsibly when uh, causally determined by facts occurring before uh, that agent was, was born. But even if we can accept that, it's a whole other thing for the compatibilist to ask us to believe that an agent can act freely and responsibly even when subject to this kind of insidious backroom manipulation. That's the sense in which this manipulation argument is something new that people are discussing now as opposed to just the same old problem for compatibilism. To date, the focus has so far been almost exclusively on the issue of moral responsibility. But this argument also poses a serious challenge for compatibilist attempts to understand human freedom in its own right. Intuitively, Ernie does not act with full freedom, and yet he may be free in all of the most familiar compatibilist senses. He might have a wide range of alternative possibilities in the sense that he would have acted differently had he chosen to do so. He might be partially self-created in the sense that his current character is the product of past choices made against a background of alternative possibilities. He might enjoy substantial degrees of practical rationality. He might have a large degree of political liberty and so on. So explaining his apparent lack of freedom looks to be every bit as difficult for the compatibilist as explaining his apparent lack of responsibility. In this paper, I hope to show how Ernie does indeed lack a kind of compatibilist freedom, although not one of the standard ones. But before I explain what that kind of freedom is, it'll be helpful to get a closer understanding of this manipulation argument. Now that's the problem to which I now turn. So the first thing to understand about the manipulation argument is that a version of it also arises for certain types of libertarian. Here by libertarian, I mean somebody uh, who believes that free will and moral responsibility are not compatible with determinism and also believes that we do, in fact, have free will and moral responsibility. Because while determinism allows Diana to be absolutely certain that her manipulation will succeed, infallibility is no more a requirement of successful manipulation than it is of any other action. So a manipulator who made it very likely that an action be performed has in the ordinary sense succeeded in engineering or bringing about that action. So let's suppose that Diana inhabits an indeterministic universe and that her knowledge of the current state of the universe and the laws of nature make it possible for her to predict with a very high degree of probability that Z will develop into Ernie and that Ernie will A at the appointed time. And let's suppose that that is indeed what happens. I take it that many will be similarly reluctant to concede that when Ernie A's, he does so with full freedom and moral responsibility. In fact, a version of the manipulation argument can get off the ground just with reference to two quite plausible principles. So any view that accepts both of these principles is going to be subject to some version of the manipulation argument. The first is a principle I call no radical choice. For a choice or action to be free and a sound basis for ascriptions of moral responsibility, it must have been somehow influenced by some motivational element. That's 
purposely very broad and vague. By a motivational element, I just mean any kind of conative input to practical deliberation or choice. I have in mind things like preferences, desires, values, patterns of reasons responsiveness, and so on. And somehow influenced is here intended to be much broader than causally determined, accommodating causal relations that are merely probabilistic, as well as those that are not event causal. All that's required of this relation is that it supports certain types of counterfactual, namely to the effect that had the agent had different motivational elements, then that agent would have acted or have been more likely to act differently. This is a plausible principle. It's just the idea that choice, choice or action undertaken for no reason, motivated by no desire, can never form, sorry, can never form a sound basis for moral responsibility or be part of a valuable form of freedom. One familiar source of support for the claim lies in the Humean idea that free and responsible actions must in some way spring from one's volitional character. And that a choice that's truly radical in the sense of bearing no connection whatsoever to one's prior character is far from being an exercise of freedom, no more than some sort of unintelligible mental spasm, what Helen Stewart calls a kind of random upsurge of total irrationality into one's psychological life. What's more, this principle entails that all motivational elements are ultimately given in the sense that they're ultimately unchosen. This is the familiar regress here, right? Every motivational element is either unchosen or it's the result of some choice that must itself have been made on the basis of some prior motivational elements which were either unchosen or arose from choice made on the basis of some prime motivational elements and so on, because that chain doesn't run forever, what lies at its end must inevitably be motivational elements that are unchosen and having arisen from processes outside of our control. Okay, but this principle by itself doesn't yet open the door to the manipulation argument, because the relations of influence between the given motivational elements and the agent's choices and actions might be so indirect and weakly probabilistic as to give a potential manipulator no reliable way of governing that agent's behavior. So views are vulnerable to the manipulation argument only if they also endorse a second principle, which I call strong influence. An action may be free and a sound basis for ascriptions of moral responsibility, even when it has been very significantly influenced by its agent's motivational elements. Again, this is a very weak and, I hope, plausible principle. Suppose that you have absolutely overwhelming reason to act in a particular way. Suppose that self-interest, morality, and immediate inclination all happily converge decisively on the same course of action, such that it's just incredibly likely, given your current motivational elements, that this is what you're going to do. Strong influence is just the claim that this action is not, for this reason, unfree, or one for which one lacks moral responsibility. To deny strong influence, is to accept that reason itself can sometimes undermine freedom and moral responsibility. Okay, so both of these principles are weak and plausible. That's not to say they can't be denied, and various philosophers through history uh, have seen fit to deny one or the other, or both. But they're plausible enough that I think it's fair to call any libertarian who denies, oh sorry, anybody who denies either of them um, 
a radical in some sense, right? Any view that denies one of these in some sense a radical view. So let me call libertarians who reject one of both these principles radical libertarians and those who accept them both non-radical libertarians. The idea is that if our motivational elements are ultimately given, then they might have been given by a manipulator. And if our motivational elements can influence our actions to a very significant extent, then such a manipulator could influence our actions to a very significant extent. So just by accepting these two plausible principles, we appear to be committed to the conclusion I've called manipulation, so that an action may be free and a sound basis for ascriptions of moral responsibility, even when it's been engineered or brought about by a skilled, sinister manipulator. And that, I take it, is implausible, at least prima facie. So let me call this the wide version of the manipulation argument. This version targets not only compatibilists, but also what I've called non-radical libertarians. That is anybody who accepts these two principles. Now, it should be clear in the way I've set this up that indeterminism is not in itself a solution to the wide version of this, of this argument, because the problematic conclusion is not that a manipulator can deterministically cause or make absolutely certain the relevant action, but just that she can reliably bring it about. Nevertheless, all libertarians require some degree of looseness in the connections between actions and prior motivational elements. And that means that manipulators can never be absolutely in control of their victims for the libertarian. By contrast, compatibilists are committed to the view that this control can be absolutely ironclad. And this means that the compatibilist looks committed to an even stronger and therefore even less plausible conclusion which I've dubbed manipulation star. An action may be free and a sound basis for ascriptions of moral responsibility, even when it's been infallibly engineered right down to its tiniest details by a skilled, sinister manipulator. So let me call this the narrow version of the manipulation argument. This targets just compatibilists. So we've got two versions of the manipulation argument. The wide version can be deployed by radical libertarians and also by skeptics about freedom and moral responsibility. And it alleges that both compatibilists and non-radical libertarians are committed to manipulation, which is implausible. The narrow version can be deployed by libertarians of all stripes, as well as by skeptics. And it alleges that compatibilists specifically are committed to manipulation star, and that this is highly implausible. OK, that's the situation as I see it. And if that's right, the compatibilist has two tasks. The first is to explain why manipulation and manipulation star appear implausible. And they can do this, I mean, they got, they got two options here. They can either do this by conceding that they're false and showing why they're not in fact committed to them. That's what Michael McKenna calls a soft line response. Or they can do this by demonstrating that they are in fact true and then explaining away their apparent implausibility. That's what McKenna calls a hardline response. So the hardline response is to bite the bullet on Ernie and to say that he is in fact free and responsible, in which case we need some accounting as to why it doesn't look that way. Um, the softline response is to try to make good on our intuition that he's not free and responsible. That's the first task. 
The second task is to explain why manipulation star seems even less plausible than manipulation, given that the only difference between them seems to be the background assumption of determinism. This is not a dialectical burden on the compatibilist that's been widely recognized. Um, but I think distinguishing the narrow and the wide versions of the argument reveals it, and it reveal, reveals it to be quite a difficult burden for the compatibilist to lay down. So in the rest of this paper, I'm going to leave this issue of moral responsibility to the side and focus just on the question of freedom. I'm going to advance a compatibilist explanation of what worries us about manipulation cases with respect to freedom. This being that there's at least one important valuable freedom that agents like Ernie lack in virtue of their manipulation. And I'm going to argue that this particular freedom is one that Ernie lacks more of under determinism, even though this freedom is compatible with determinism in general. And that's going to enable the compatibilist to explain why manipulation star is less plausible than manipulation. And finally, I'm going to suggest that even though the sort of freedom I have in mind is not itself necessary for moral responsibility, understanding the way in which Ernie lacks freedom can help bolster a compatibilist response as regards moral responsibility. But I'll come to that right at the very end. So in what way does manipulation compromise freedom? A tempting thought might be that manipulated agents lack some kind of social freedom, since they're caused to act as they do by other agents. But a little reflection suggests that this is very unpromising, because we're caused to act by other agents all the time, and we're not for that reason unfree. What's more, we're shaped and molded throughout childhood by the intentional actions of our carers and educators. So when Diana influences Ernie's future actions without his consent, she doesn't seem relevantly different in this regard from his parents and his school teachers. It's therefore unclear what conception of social freedom could succeed in capturing the fact that Diana undermines Ernie's freedom without also yielding the intolerable result that all carers and educators undermine all of our freedom. Right. So what's special about the Ernie and Diana case that's different from just the normal case? That despite this problem, I'm going to argue that Ernie does indeed lack a type of social freedom. In this section, I'm going to outline the basic account. Um, and in the following section, I'll explain why this doesn't yield the, um, the problematic result that none of us are free in this sense. On the account of freedom I have in mind, freedom is essentially a matter of not being subject to foreign wills. It's a form of social negative self-rule. That is, self-rule is the absence of rule by others. And for this reason, it's, it can be understood as a kind of social autonomy. I'm going to call it social autonomy. I should add this is by no means the only thing uh, that we can refer to as social autonomy. And indeed, it's not what most people mean by social autonomy. Before getting to the details of the account, there are a couple of important preliminaries. The first is that freedom is social autonomy in the sense I intend is a eudaimonic notion, not a deontic one. That's to say that the moral point of the concept is to describe an ingredient in a flourishing human life. 
and not, or at least not directly, to denote the absence of certain types of moral wrong or the basis of an agent's possession of certain rights. The idea is that part of what it is for one's life to go well is for one to enjoy a certain kind of independence from the control or manipulation of others. And to the extent to which one is subject to foreign wills, one's deficient with respect to some important human value. Slaves, inhabitants of brutal dictatorships, victims of domestic abuse, cult members, the characters in Huxley's Brave New World are all, I take it, relatively uncontroversial examples of people whose lives are going badly in virtue of the fact that they're excessively subject to the control or manipulation of others. And social autonomy, in the sense I have in mind, is not the only value. And it often competes with other values of equal or greater importance, especially those of community, love, trust, friendship, and as we'll see later, sometimes truth and knowledge and even rationality. Finally, there's no reason to think that in order to live a flourishing human life, one must be entirely independent of interpersonal control or be maximally socially autonomous. As with many other values, what primarily matters is that one have enough that one not fall below some threshold such that one's store of the value is inadequate for minimally decent human life. I take it that's what we think of the slave case, right? The slave is substantially deficient in something like this kind of value. The comparison here with another value, something like knowledge, right? We might think that having some degree of knowledge and understanding is an important human good and an important component of a flourishing human life. But we don't mean by that necessarily that to live a flourishing life, you have to know everything. You have to understand everything. You have to have the maximum. What we have in mind is that there's some threshold. There's some degree of ignorance at which we would doubt that you are really living a flourishing life. What matters is that you not fall below that, that threshold. So I take it the situation with social autonomy is similar. OK. And that's going to be an important point later. OK. To the details of the account. Being subject to a foreign will is a special case of being gotten to do something. So let's say that A gets B to X just in case B's doing X is brought about by A acting so as to bring about B's doing X. Okay, and we get each other to do things all of the time. But in only some of those cases are we subjecting somebody else to our foreign will in the case I have in mind. So the question is, what, what is special about those cases? What marks out a case of getting someone to do something as, as this particular case of subjecting them to one's foreign will? Now, broadly speaking, there are two different ways of getting someone to do something. We can get someone to do something by modifying that person's options, say, via offers or threats. Or we can get someone to do something by modifying their preferences, by persuasion or manipulation. So you think of this as um, a standard choice situation involving an agent who confronts a set of options and then selects one of those options on the basis of her preferences. The first way, the sort of type one option-oriented way of getting this person to do what you want them to do, 
is to play around with the options that they face through threats, offers, physical obstruction, and so on. The second way, the preference-oriented way, is to leave the options as they are, but to play around with the preferences. Now, some option-oriented ways of getting someone to do something are ways of subjecting that person to one's foreign will, as in the case with most threats. And some option-oriented ways of getting someone to do something are not ways of subjecting them to one's foreign will, as in the case with most offers. Similarly, on the preference side, some preference-oriented ways of getting people to do things are ways of subjecting them to one's foreign will, as in the cases we're interested in here, and other ways of getting people to do things are not, as with most forms of rational persuasion. Now, a complete account of interpersonal subjection, social autonomy, in the sense I have in mind, would provide characterizations of both distinctions. But here I'm going to leave aside the type 1 option-oriented cases and focus just on the preference-oriented cases. So the question is, what makes a preference-oriented type 2 instance of getting someone to do something a case of subjecting that person to one's foreign will. My claim is that being gotten to do something is a case of being subject to foreign will, just in case that will is relevantly foreign. And the relevant notion of foreignness is given by the following condition, which I call the conformity of wills condition. In getting B to X, A does not subject B to A's will if it's the case that, one, B is capable of understanding that A intends to get B to X by certain means. And two, were B to know this, B would not repudiate A's intention, where this lack of repudiation is not itself a product of B's prior subjection to a foreign will. The basic idea is that if I would endorse your will, right, so you're, you're trying to get me to do something by influencing my preferences, if I would endorse your intention, your aim, in getting me to do that, then your will is not relevantly foreign to me and my purposes. Actually, the account is weaker. I don't have to endorse it. I just have to not reject it. That's the basic account. Now, most rational agents have the general aim of acting in accordance with reasons. In fact, this general aim might even be constitutive of being a rational agent. So most rational agents willingly endorse any and all attempts to get them to act in accordance with reasons, that is, attempts at rational persuasion. And by the same token, most of us typically repudiate the intentions of those who attempt to influence our behavior by non-rational means. Backroom propagandists, streetwise experts of the hard cell, slick virtuosos of the soft cell, manipulative pickup artists, so on. But there are exceptions. A religious fundamentalist might care more about maintaining her faith than apportioning her beliefs to the evidence, and might dismiss all atheist arguments as the devil's work. Destabilizing such a person's religious beliefs by forcibly exposing her to such atheist arguments, no matter how rational those arguments, is therefore to subject her to a foreign will on this account. Conversely, the will of the hypnotist that I hired to help me to quit smoking is not relevantly foreign to me. 
despite the non-rational nature of the influence. And many of us, I take it, are happy for charities to tug on our heartstrings in order to increase our donations, as opposed to just sticking to the facts and figures. And most of us, I hazard, would prefer to be enticed rather than reasoned into bed. So to be subject to a foreign will is to be gotten to do something where the conformity of will's condition is not met. But as we've seen, what matters generally is not whether someone is subject to a foreign will simpliciter, but to what extent someone is subject to a foreign will. This is something that can come in degrees. So we need to know what it is uh, to be more or less subject to a foreign will. And I claim that the degree of one's subjection is a function of three variables. The first is the strength of B's repudiation of A's intention. So the idea is just that I'm less subject to a foreign will when influenced by another's intention that I only mildly reject than by one that I strongly reject. The second is the extent to which A's influence raises the probability of B's doing X. So it's natural to regard the extent to which A gets B to X as a matter of the significance of the causal role played by A's action in the bringing about of B's doing X. If A's action or if A's influence makes only a very small difference to the likelihood of B's doing X, either because B was going to do X anyway, um, or because B wasn't going to do X and this has just made it just a tiny difference, just made um, B only slightly more likely to do it, then we might be reluctant to say that A has even gotten B to do X. But if A's action massively raises the likelihood of B's doing X, then we're much more inclined to say that A has gotten B to X. Okay. So the second variable is, is, the, is the amount by which uh, the influence raises the probability of B's performing the relevant action. And finally, we have the degree of specificity of A's intention. So the more general the manipulator's intention, the less subject one is to the manipulator's will. And that's because the more general the description under which the manipulator is getting you to act, the more that's left up to you in terms of how specifically you're going to act under it. So to take the limiting case, if you manipulate me just into performing some action, then I'm subject to your will to only the most minimal degree. But if you manipulate me into doing something specified right down to the tiniest detail, then I'm very much subject to your will. So for example, you subject me to your will less in getting me to stay in my room than in getting me to stay in the country. No, wrong way around. <laughs> you subject me to your will more in getting me to stay in my room than getting me to stay in the country. Okay, that's the account of freedom as social autonomy. And it's in this sense I'm going to argue that Ernie lacks freedom. But the problem is, it seems, that we all lack freedom on this account. We all fail the conformative wills condition, especially in regard um, to early influences from our carers and our educators. So the task now is to explain how this account, in fact, has the resources to make 
plausible distinctions um, between different types of education and socialization so as to avoid that intolerable result. Okay, so the problem here is not that all children are subject to unwanted manipulation and turn out to be substantially non-autonomous. That's true, but it's not a problem. Children are indeed subject to foreign wills, and insofar as that's in their interests, that's just justified paternalism. Right? So the problem isn't about children when they're children. The problem is about the adults that the children grow into. The problem is that the adults are going to turn out to be substantially non-autonomous in virtue of the manipulation to which they were subject when they were children. So when a parent coerces a child, right, so when I coerce my two-year-old daughter into putting her shoes on, I dictate her behavior in just in this one instance. But when I engineer a motivational element in my daughter, so when I try to get her to have an aversion to throwing food at the table, which is definitely a work in progress, um, but suppose I succeed in that. I'll be dictating her behavior, not just now in this instance, but far into the future. So adults, insofar as they're significantly influenced by motivational elements intentionally brought about by their carers and educators, continue to be subject to the wills of those carers and educators. And that makes it look like on the proposed account, we're all non-autonomous, even when we're the products of most enlightened and liberal processes of education and socialization. And that looks like an intolerable result. OK, so what are we going to say about that? Well, the key is the idea that social autonomy in this sense comes in degrees. So the question is about which processes of education and socialization put agents under the threshold of autonomy necessary for flourishing human lives? Which processes, in effect, um, put us in the category of slaves and cult members and inhabitants of brutal regimes and so on, um, or close to that? And which don't? Which allow us to remain above that threshold, even though we're not perfectly or maximally socially autonomous? Indeed, I suggest that one of the main points of the intuitive distinction that we draw between indoctrinating and non-indoctrinating processes um, is to separate processes falling on either side of that threshold. So an indoctrinating process of education just is one that um, puts people below this threshold of autonomy that we think is necessary for a decent or flourishing human life. So to see how the account can yield a convincing analysis of the distinction between indoctrination and education, Let's consider two hypothetical extremes of educational practice. At indoctrination high, pupils' beliefs and values are instilled as rigid and uncriticizable systems, unshakably immune to new evidence and acted on without reflection or scrutiny. At enlightened college, propositions are taught provisionally as subject to ongoing processes of criticism and rational revision. This school seeks to develop both its pupils' critical capacities and their motivation to exercise these capacities so that they'll be able to step back from their instilled beliefs, adopt a critical and questioning stance towards them, and if necessary, go on to revise or abandon them. And let's call typical adult graduates of these schools indoctrinated and enlightened.
intuitively, I take it that in, indoctrinated is indoctrinated and enlightened is not. And that indoctrinated is substantially lacking in something like social autonomy understood as a kind of independence from the control and manipulation of others, whereas enlightened is not substantially lacking in that. So the question is whether the pr proposed account is able to yield these conclusions to match these intuitions. As we saw, the degree of one's subjection is a function of three variables. I think two of those variables, specificity and probability, are key to understanding the distinction here. Let me start with specificity. So teachers at both schools intend their pupils to believe what's true. But at indoctrination high, the teachers take themselves to be teaching final immutable truths, called the set of these truths P. And their intention that their pupils believe what's true is therefore extensionally equivalent to the intention that their pupils believe P. By contrast, at enlightened college, teachers take themselves to be teaching provisional truths that are subject to ongoing critical processes of rational reassessment. In their case, the intention that their pupils believe what's true is no more than the intention that their pupils believe whatever the truth may be. And the intention that someone believe P is more specific than the intention that someone believe whatever the truth may be. So in getting someone to believe the former, one exercises more control over her than one does in getting her to believe the latter. So in this respect, in respect of specificity, the account yields the conclusion that indoctrinated is substantially less autonomous than enlightened. The second concerns probability. So in the case of indoctrinated, instilling an attitude that P made it almost certain that as an adult he would now act on the basis of P, because his closed mind makes revision in light of new evidence unlikely. So if you give an indoctrination eye, you instill an attitude in the child, that attitude is likely to remain untouched. But in the case of enlightened, instilling an attitude that P made it only somewhat probable that she would later act on the basis of P. And that's because Enlighten's more open mind, constituted by her capacity for and motivation to engage in critical reflection, makes it possible that she will at some point revise or abandon the attitude. And that means that the teachers at Enlightened College cannot reliably predict what conclusions their students will eventually come to. And that means that in the case of Enlightened, the chains of diachronic control are substantially weaker than in the case of indoctrinated, and that enlightened is therefore substantially less subject to the wills of her former educators. So in this respect as well, we get the result that indoctrinated uh, substantially lacks autonomy in a way that enlightened does not. Now we might think here, in relation to the probability point, okay, um, why bother with fostering critical attitudes and rationality and so on? If we care about autonomy in this sense, why not just implant a device in the students' brains that will generate beliefs at random? 
That's another way of making their future actions less predictable. Well, on the proposed account, these students would indeed be significantly independent the teacher's will. They would be beyond the control of their teacher. And they would indeed be significantly socially autonomous in this respect. But of course, they'd fail to lead flourishing human lives, not because of any deficiency with respect to social autonomy, but because of a crippling lack of rationality. Just as indoctrination is not the only kind of bad teaching, a lack of social autonomy is not the only kind of suboptimal life. Autonomy is not the only value. So, just to elaborate on that for a second, the idea is that we have various competing values. We want our children to be socially autonomous to an extent. We also want them to believe what's true. We want to transmit, successfully transmit some of our knowledge to the next generation. Um, if we only cared about social autonomy, right, then maybe we, we wouldn't educate them at all. We'd just let them work things out for themselves. If we only cared about transmitting our knowledge, right, then maybe we'd indoctrinate them. But because we care about both, we've got to find some sort of compromise. And teaching them content while also giving them the skills to rationally, critically reflect on that is a way of forging this compromise and realizing both values to a reasonable extent simultaneously. Okay, and that's maybe something we can talk about more in the questions. Okay. So let's come back to the manipulation argument. we saw earlier, the compatibilist has two tasks. The first was to explain why manipulation and manipulation star both appear implausible. And we can see now that as regards freedom, the compatibilist has an answer, which is that they're both false. Ernie lacks freedom in the sense of social autonomy because Ernie is subject to the foreign will of Diana. Now in applying this result to agents like Ernie, it's important to understand the differences between ordinary manipulators, like real-world indoctrinators, and superpowered manipulators like Diana. In the case of the ordinary manipulators, ordinary indoctrinators, because they have limited knowledge and means, the way for them to take diachronic control of somebody else's attitudes is by ensuring that those attitudes are relatively static and rigid and unrevisable. Right? In the actual world, with actual human powers, that's more or less the only way to do it, is to make these attitudes static. But a superpowered manipulator like Diana can do without those relatively crude techniques. Her unnatural powers of prediction allow her to assume a similar or probably greater level of diachronic control while allowing her victim flexible, revisable attitudes. Right? So to exercise a diachronic control, she doesn't have to make the attitude static the way a real indoctrinator does, because she can predict the future and she knows everything and so on. 
she can exercise her control in a more sophisticated way. So rigidity of attitude, which is often the defining mark of indoctrination, is actually just one means by which an agent can exercise long-term interpersonal control over another. In our world, it's probably the only means. So Ernie is every bit as lacking in social autonomy as indoctrinated, just by different means. And that's why he has substantially less freedom than he would have had he originated without Diana's involvement. That's the first task. We saw that the compatibilist also had a second task, which is to explain why manipulation star, right, which is the claim that an action can be free even when it's been infallibly engineered right down to its tiniest details. To explain why that is even less plausible than just plain old manipulation. And this account enables the compatibilist to do that too. The compatibilist can explain what it is about determinism that aggravates whatever troubles us about these manipulation cases. And it's that determinism enables a superpowered manipulator like Diana to engineer Ernie's actions with certainty. Right? Something that she could otherwise do only with some degree of probability. And as we saw, the probability, the degree of probability um, by which a manipulator affects uh, her victim's actions um, is one of the variables with respect to the degree of subjection varies. So under determinism, Diana can subject Ernie to a far greater extent than she could do under indeterminism. That explains our intuition, right, that manipulation star is less plausible. But it explains it in a way that's friendly to compatibilism in general. So the compatibilist can say this. It's true that libertarian free will makes it harder for supernatural beings like Diana to manipulate us. Were we to have libertarian free will, beings like Diana would have a harder time. And that means that were we to live in a world populated by those kinds of beings, then we would have reasons of social autonomy to value possession of libertarian free will. But we don't live in that world. And the sorts of manipulators, the ordinary manipulators that we actually come up against, um, have to rely on probabilistic judgments regarding our behavior, whether determinism is true or not, because we're sufficiently complex and unpredictable to ordinary people. So one of the reasons, the compatibilist can say, why this focus on superpowered manipulators is rhetorically favorable to incompatibilists is because it directs our attention to, to contexts in which libertarian free will has this special social value. But that's not a kind of value possessed by libertarian free will in our actual context. So I said I'd end by saying something about moral responsibility. I've tried to argue that compatibilists can use this idea, this account of social autonomy that I've proposed to construct a satisfying response to the manipulation argument as it applies to freedom. But moral responsibility does not require social autonomy in this sense. And so none of these considerations help the compatibilist directly with respect to responsibility. 
That said, I think that understanding how the manipulation argument fails with respect to freedom can help indirectly. Now, Michael McKenna is a compatibilist um, who's written quite a lot on this argument. His view is that the best response in the end for the compatibilist as regards moral responsibility is a hard line one. That is, the best response for the compatibilist is to insist that Ernie remains morally responsible despite the manipulation. And there are various arguments and considerations that can be marshaled in defense of that claim. Compatibilists um, can try to make that seem a bit, a bit easier to stomach. But even Michael McKenna concedes that manipulation star retains a kind of lingering implausibility. So we can do everything we can to cast it in its best light, still feels something not quite right about it. So what the compatibilist needs as regards responsibility is a plausible explanation of why a manipulation star might retain this lingering implausibility if it's in fact true, as the compatibilist will claim. To that end, it's essential to keep separate two claims. The first is that people like Ernie may be fair targets for praise and blame. The second is that people like Ernie may be paragons of agency more generally. Now, in asserting the first, that Ernie can be a fair target for praise and blame, it may be that compatibilists are also taken to be asserting the second, that Ernie can be a paragon of agency. And to be honest, that's not entirely unfair, because prima facie, compatibilists are just as committed to both claims. Moreover, as Bernard Williams explained, there's a kind of easy tendency to move from the idea of one's being responsible for some action to that of one's being a responsible agent, where the idea of a responsible agent is liable to take on the air of some more general ideal of agency. As I've tried to show today, compatibilists have sound reasons for rejecting the second claim, the claim that Ernie can be a paragon of agency. And once that claim is out of the picture, once it's conceded that something is importantly amiss in radical manipulation cases, it may be that the first claim, specifically about praise and blame, might be an easier pill to swallow. So in that way, supplementing a hard line on responsibility with a soft line on freedom in the way that I've suggested, a combined strategy we might call a two-line response, may perhaps help to bring compatibilists closer to a convincing overall reply to the manipulation argument. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll take a, a brief break now.